Hello, and welcome to Follow Your Curiosity, where we explore the ups and downs of the creative process and how to keep it moving. I'm your host, Nancy Norbeck. I am a writer, singer, improv comedy newbie, science fiction geek, and creativity coach who loves helping right-brained folks get unstuck. I am so excited to be coming to you with interviews and coaching calls to show you the depth and breadth both of creative pursuits and creative people, to give you some insight into their experiences, and to inspire you. Today, I'm talking to Nina Hart, a fellow Kaizen Muse coach. Like me, Nina is a writer, but also like me, she's not just a writer. She's also a dancer and stand-up comedian and improv artist. We talk about her experiences doing all these things, particularly how she began to own her identity as a writer, as well as what it means to be good, enough, and good enough. We also delve into the inner critic. Where does it really come from? Spoiler, it's not you. And our culture of criticism. There's a lot here, and I can't wait for you to dig in. So here's my conversation with Nina Hart. I've known you for a while, but... People who are listening are not going to have known you for a while. So Nina is a writer and she teaches writing workshops and she's also a Kaizen Muse coach and you do something called the Gateless Method that I'm terribly curious to hear about. So where would you like to start? (laughs) Yes. Well, I am so happy to know you and be connected with you through the Kaizen Muse Method and... um, I've I've been a writer all my life, but I I was very shy about coming forward with my writing. It felt like the most vulnerable thing mm-hmm. I could do. I I would rather like shoot myself in the foot and <laughs> write, you know, read my writing to someone. Right. Um, but I knew I had a calling, and it was a nagging feeling, and I knew I had to work through some stuff. So I started working through it on my own about ten years ago. And I had some very large breakthroughs that allowed me to open up to a source of writing that felt so much bigger than my little ego. Mm -hmm. And the writing started coming through me in a whole different way. And when I found that, I had a calling that followed that was about helping other writers find this freedom in themselves. And I knew that I wanted some more tools, though, because I think it's, as you know, as a coach, it's kind of underrated in terms of, <laughs> you know, we don't, we, we see the end product of what a right artist does, but we don't see the torture that goes on right. behind the scenes. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely heartbreaking sometimes to watch others go through the the resistance and the obstacles you know and i i <laughs> i can only say from personal experience that i had to work through that and i felt alone and what's wrong with me and when i you know when i decided to start teaching writing through my own healing of heartbreak i knew that kaizen muse when i started googling around for yeah uh, you know coaching methods, it, it really spoke to me as I know it did you. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So that's when I decided to put, when I became a creativity coach, but to put the coaching together with the opening up to your own 
writing channel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and they worked so beautifully together. Um, so in answer to your question, I mean, it, it's about how I met you, right? And I, you know, and you're a writer too. And I think we both have uh, similar experiences in that way and a longing to pass on, you know, a freedom so that others can experience creativity as, as it's meant to be for each person. Yeah. And, and as you were talking, I was thinking, isn't it interesting how we tend to want to do the thing that we had trouble with to help somebody else? Yes. You know, it's like, I know that people have trouble with this thing, that they get stuck on this thing, that they think that it's silly or they can't do it, or, yes. or they look at somebody else's finished product and they say, oh, they just sat down in 10 minutes and created the Mona Lisa and I'm having a hard time. Therefore, this isn't for me. Yes. And, and, you know, you're like, yeah, no, actually everybody has a hard time. Everybody runs into trouble. I mean, I didn't know Leah. Leonardo da Vinci, but I'm pretty sure he had really bad days on top of the really good ones. And it did not just spring forth fully formed. And yes. yeah. And so it's like, it does, it feels like there are days when I just want to go and shout from the rooftops. It's okay. It's okay to think it's a mess. It's okay to think you're a mess. You're not a mess. You're doing the right thing. It's all good. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, what sets apart people who become masterful at what they do is, is just the ability to persist Yeah, and, you know, to keep following that next step. And, you know, Leonardo, I, I he did uh, leave many paintings unfinished. They were just in sketch form or, I mean, if you, if you do research on him, there've been a lot of wonderful books written on him, but um, he's a great example of, um, someone who could have used a coach at times, but <laughs> he obviously worked through what he needed to work. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that we practice, we, we preach best what we've had to practice. And I love that. I know this issue so deeply. And I was also a dancer for many years, a professional dancer. And I'm a bass player, and so I've kind of traveled in a lot of genres, mm -hmm. you know, also as a performer. I think that there are a unique set of vulnerabilities that come up with performance, having to share your work publicly yeah. in that way. So I, I love working with performers, too. So. Yeah, and I can tell you from my own experience, like, Writing is easy, comparatively speaking, you know, I mean, you're doing it by yourself. Nobody is sitting there over your shoulder, except like, you know, the little cartoon character, the angel and the devil and whatever, if you let them um, <laughs> saying, don't write that. <laughs> but it isn't until or unless you are expected to read that writing that you actually have to like stand up and own it in a really, really vulnerable way, even handing it to somebody else on paper, which can be plenty difficult, is not the same as having to stand up and read it in your own voice and, and basically perform it. But even that, the, the thing that scares me most probably in my entire life is having to get up and sing by myself. I have wicked, wicked stage fright. And 
I've never had a full-blown panic attack, so I can't say exactly how close it is, but I would say that's the closest I've ever come. It will take me, you know, if I let myself think about it ahead of time, you know, I have to not think about it until as close as I can before I have to do it. And because it will just own me and, and there, it will be the, the nerves and the shaking and everything for hours, no matter what I tell myself, no matter how much deep breathing I do, it, it doesn't matter. And then afterwards, it'll take a good half hour, 45 minutes after it's over for my body to finally decide that I'm not going to die. And, and so, I mean, yeah, there, there are certain things sitting down and putting words on a page is like falling off a log compared to getting up and doing that. And that is all of that vulnerability. It's like, oh my God, if I actually let you see what's in here, this is really me, you know, in a way that even writing isn't quite for me. And, and it's tough. And people think that, you know, oh, it's easy. You just get up and do this. It, it was really comforting to me several years ago when I was trying to deal with it to read about how many people that you've heard of really struggle with it. I felt so much better. Yes. Yeah. And I, I think it's, it's, coming out of the closet now, you know, that, that so many people struggle with that. And, uh, you know, I think the greater the drive, the greater the gift sometimes, um, like, you know, you have a gift for singing and that's why it's extra hard. And I've seen that in writers I work with, the ones that are like, I want to do this so badly. I just am going to burst. Mm-hmm. And yet, everything is telling me not to, you know, and, and those are the gifts that need to come out. And, and yet the inverse, whatever the chemical reaction of what happens in terms of actually taking that step to perform or to bring it forward, it, it's even harder. Mm -hmm. So it's a funny, it's a funny thing, but I, you know, to hear that about your right, uh, your singing, it, it's very familiar to me. So I do stand up comedy and I have to go to open mics every week now. Mm-hmm. And I literally sit there in the audience before I have to go up. And the little voice in me is saying, you can leave now. It's <laughs> time to leave quick run high quick. It's total yeah. fight or flight. And mm-hmm. if I listen to it and give it <laughs> license to rule my life, I will leave. And I have left. There are times where I just could not handle it mm-hmm. and I've left. But the times that I have not, I either learn from my failure, what I call failure, or that learning curve gets greater or I have a success up there that I never would have experienced that magic, as you know, as a singer and a writer, that magic that, that we're keeping from ourselves. If we don't allow ourselves to do that, which scares us, not by throwing ourselves off a cliff, but making it safe enough to know that our nervous system can (laughs) handle it and that we are actually going to grow as human beings and sharing our gifts gives gifts to others in ways that we will never understand. We can't anticipate. We can't know until we do it. Yeah. So I love helping people get to that point where it's like, I have a voice. I'm going to use it. I'm going to share it. So. Yeah. 
I didn't know you do stand up. I've been doing improv for the last year and and that's kind of the same. There are many reasons yes. why I do improv, but one of them is you never know what's going to happen. You can't plan for it. You can't you know, it, it, did you make a mistake? Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? There was no script. There was no nothing and it it makes you get up. It makes you get out of your head and it's usually pretty funny. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, and isn't that fun? I mean, that joy of play which brings us back to something so primal. And I also went from improv to stand-up, so I'm still doing improv, and I know I know what you're talking about, like to get to be able to to do that with other people and uh, not know. And I think that's also the joy of writing um, when you can enter that improvisational state where your sensor is not, or your yeah. thinker, your inner thinker is not at the helm anymore you're actually on an amusement park ride yeah. and you're just like you're on the ride you don't know what the ride's gonna look like and you're like holy cow wow that is awesome like you know but you can't anticipate the ride until you let yourself get on you strap yourself in yeah and, and you know for for as many times as you have the day where you can't get words to come you know where it feels like like that pulling teeth proverb yeah. In there, when I was writing my novel, there were a couple of times when it just would come out of absolute nowhere. And, it, you know, I'd write 10 pages in an hour and I'd feel like I ran a marathon at the end of it. But while it was happening, it was like the greatest natural high ever because it's just like, whoa, stuff is happening. I have no idea. And, and I sort of do improv when I write in the sense that I don't plot things out ahead of time. So I don't I may know the general direction I'm going in. Like this thing needs to happen now. Um, this character is going to be interrogated, you know, whatever. But I don't know exactly what it's going to look like until it happens. And when that stuff comes, I'm sure I don't need to tell you because I'm sure you've been there. It's just this fabulous flow state and you think, can I stay here forever? And then you remember how tired you were at the end of that hour and go, okay, maybe, maybe just sometimes. Uh (laughs) Yeah. I would be dead in a week if it happened all the time. Right. Right. It's channeling a lot of energy through you, you know, And, and yet if you didn't show up for it, you would never get that experience. Yeah. what is it Elizabeth Gilbert says? She's like a mule otherwise with her work. She's like, she's, sh- she's like a mule, like trudging up the hill. And sometimes that beautiful fountain comes through and there's nothing like that flow state. And uh, yeah, it's sad to me that a lot of artists keep themselves from that joy. Yeah. So, you know, we can't do it or expect it every day. But no, and, and we can't expect perfection either. I think, no. you know, I, when I was in grad school, I was so shocked when I first got there because I have always been naturally good at things like grammar and spelling and punctuation. And I figured anybody who was a writer would be naturally good at these things. And there were people in my class who weren't. I, I was stunned when we had, you know, our opening session and one of the faculty was saying, you know, every time you submit your work to your advisor, it needs to be your best work. If you're not good at punctuation or grammar, have someone proofread it for you. And I thought, who are these writers who don't know how to do these things? But you know, it it's true. Not everybody is great at it. And but that's why proofreaders and editors exist. And it doesn't mean that you can't be a writer if your grammar isn't great. Maybe right. the fact that your grammar isn't great is actually part of your voice and part of what you're supposed to be putting out there. Maybe it's not. You you know, you're the only one who can decide that. But 
but yeah, we have this idea that, you know, every painter has to be, you know, technically perfect and, you know, every dancer and, and all of that. And I don't, I don't think that's really true. It was, it was great for me because it helped me learn that, you know, my judgment of what a writer should be was not necessarily true. And that doesn't mean that you don't have a gift with words, even if you don't have the tech specs down. Right. I, I think that stops a lot of people. Yes, that in itself. And that's such a beautiful story of, of, you know, pointing out all of the ways in which our culture, society, academia, all of the rules we have around art have created a, a sad state of stifling uh, people's voice that, voices that we need. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, you know, an example, Paul McCartney never evidently learned how to read music. And in some circles, that would be blasphemy. And it's like, look at the beauty he's created. And he just comes from probably he's more right brained. He's probably less mathematical about things. He feels it more. Mm -hmm. You know, there are ways in which if we push out, if we think there is only one kind of intelligence, we push out I swear, 99% of human beings and human potential. And yeah, I, I believe very strongly in allowing, you know, everyone to feel empowered and, mm-hmm. and not, you know, we don't have to do it right. And we, we can break the rules. And when you break the rules, new things happen. And, and you know, I saw it in dance, that stifling technique uh, created a lot of copycats. Mm-hmm. So it puts a block against the true voice. Um, yeah. yeah. And I'm also thinking of, you know, all, all the times when you hear, especially as a kid, but not only as a kid, you know, oh, yes, there are musicians in the world, but they're very talented. Exactly. You know, which is that tone of voice that's like, they're not you. You're not good enough to be one of them. Well, maybe you are, you know, or maybe right. you're good enough to be exactly. your own kind of musician or your own kind of artist. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. But we have this idea that it's this, you know, that the top of the mountain is the people who are allowed to do all of these things. And that's just crap. It is. Yeah. <laughs> why I do this podcast. It really is. It really is. And uh, I watched a, a BBC documentary on David Bowie mm-hmm. a while ago, and his, you know, he started out as this little guy in tights and a weird haircut, you know, looking quite gawky and doing ridiculous things. And it took him a while to really find who he was. Like we we see the later product, but we don't see what that process is. And you know, we wouldn't have artists like David Bowie if he didn't have the persistence to grow into himself. And, you know, you spoke about gateless writing mm-hmm. and it, it's such a perfect um, vehicle for helping people work through what we're talking about because uh, Suzanne Kingsbury is the founder of gateless method writing. She's an editor and incredible author beautiful writer and um, she trains people to be facilitators of this Mm -hmm. method and she calls it the cult of criticism. Mm 
Mm. Um, it being a cult. And I do believe our culture has, it's, it's become a cult to criticize each other. It's what we, yes. what we do, like we attack right away. Yeah. If you look at artists who put their artwork out online, people, people are attacking people who aren't even in the ring as Brene Brown says, yes. aren't even in the ring and they feel that that's okay. And so the damage that does is um, it's insidious. It creates kind of a culture of people who think that criticism is the only way. Yeah. And so with gateless method writing, um, it's such a good example of how to unwind that because with gateless method, it's that sort of gateway to from that written page to reading your work out loud and making it safe to do so. So it's like a child walking, you wouldn't get baby like, Oh, you're doing that wrong. You, you've, <laughs> you give them time to learn to crawl. You give them all that ex exploratory time. And um, so with gateless method, basically I offer salons once a month online, free ones. Mm -hmm. Uh, as a sort of taste of that. It's not a traditional gateless salon, but um, basically you, you do a period of free writing and then the feedback is only say what you love. And mm -hmm. you learn to really point out themes in the work and the, the, you start seeing the inner genius of that writer and you, you pull it out. I mean, this is like the Amherst method is similar to there are other methods of say what you liked, but to allow, um, especially like a newer writer to feel like they are safe. Their nervous system is safe. They're not going to get attacked. Yeah. Um, that is so fundamental. And, you know, I just, I think we should, throw out criticism altogether and create a new system of, you know, how does an editor work with a writer once they've, they're nearing the finished product, you know, in a way that isn't tearing, tearing the work yeah. apart, but rather pulling out and bolstering what works. Um, I just think it needs to be looked at in, in a whole different way. And our whole culture is so much about competition, not cooperation. It, it is. And, you know, as, as you're talking, I'm thinking, because I don't think there's probably anybody who would come into contact with this podcast who hasn't been on the internet and hasn't seen the horrific cesspool that comments sections are and, and that, you know, even public discourse is sort of starting to become where everybody just picks at everything that they think is wrong about something. <clears throat> and, but it had, you had me wondering, like, I'm thinking out loud here, but I feel like we're, we're kind of like going down a path here. Like, so we started out talking about people being afraid to say what they think and then people say what they think and the other people come in and tear them apart. And I'm really wondering about those other people. Like, like are those other people just afraid and jealous because they're not the ones who are doing it. Just like Brene Brown, who also says, you know, at this point, she will not listen to criticism from anybody who is not also in the arena doing their thing, which is totally fair and totally legit. And we 
always forget about that. We listen to the negative voices first because we think they're the true ones, which is something I certainly have done many, many times. And it's so destructive. But yeah, do we have we taken creativity and and any kind of creative pursuit, whether it's artistic or, you know, anything, and turned it into such an ivory tower kind of experience that says, no, no, this is not for you, ordinary people, that this is how it comes out. I don't know. But I wonder if that's part of it, if it's like all of this, I want to do this thing, and I can't do it because I'm not good enough. So I'm going to tear you down because that'll make me feel better. Yeah, I think perhaps many people have not had a safe experience of exploring art for themselves. So perhaps there are a lot of frustrated artists out there who uh, haven't quite entered into the process. So therefore, they don't quite have perhaps the compassion they might have for people who are in the arena. Um I don't know. That is a really good question to ask. Why? Yeah. Why, when someone is not in the arena, do they feel that? I mean, it's almost like the inner critic has become externalized to such proportions that it's like, it's sort of the external monologue of (laughs) politicians. Yeah. Everybody. How do we treat each other? Yeah. So, you know, we don't foster creativity well many of us have been brought up with academic environments where that's the norm where you are critiqued you are critiqued Mm -hmm. mfa programs like over and over again the workshop method like that is the academic model and we think that sort of like no pain no gain well that person's not going to learn unless they get it attacked in some way and so then you have only a few left standing who can deal with that. Some people sort of thrive on it. That's fine. I'm not that person. Most Most people aren't that person. (laughs) Right. Right. So, and what has created this sort of culture of criticism, this cult of criticism in our culture, I don't, I don't know the answer to that question, but it's incredibly sad. It's very sad because everybody is creative. And, you know, I mean, if you think about, if you had a five-year-old and you wanted to teach that five-year-old something, you know, see now I would say, would you tear them down? But there are people who would do that. Oh, but, yeah. but most people I would hope would say, no, I would be really, really patient because they're five and they're just learning. You know, it's like learning to ride a bike. You can't yeah. scream someone into learning how to ride a bike. Right. You know, yeah. you can't beat them into learning how to ride a bike. You have to be patient. You have to, you know, keep a hand on the bike until they start to get a sense of balance because you aren't necessarily born with that sense and you have to learn it and get the hang of it. And you give them a helmet and you give them knee pads in case they fall. And, it, you know, what I mean, there's, there's the same way and there's the insane way. And it seems to me like so often once you're over 18, it's like, okay, we're done with the same way. Let's do it the insane way. Let's, let's criticize and make your life as difficult as possible and remind you that you're only human. If you're lucky, you might not even be that far. And, it, you know, what's wrong with you? Why aren't you perfect? Why haven't you learned this yet? Why is it taking you so long? Well, because you're human and not everybody is great at everything. And, and you know, the, the MFA example, when I 
picked my MFA program. Sometimes I think my MFA program picked me. I applied to three. Mm. I got into one. And I have always thought that I got into that one so that I couldn't screw up and pick the wrong one because it was so perfect for me. And it was not that let's all go into a room and tear everyone apart. And I think what happens in those situations, even though I didn't go to a program like that, just from workshops at undergrad that I experienced and stories that I've heard about them, it's so cutthroat. And I think that the idea is that if I cut everybody down better than everybody else cuts everybody down, I'm the one at the top of the heap when it's done. What a dubious distinction that is, if any. <laughs> you know, yeah. I slaughtered more people today than everybody else. I'm the best. Right. That says nothing about how you write. It says everything about who you are. But in that kind of environment, how do you not become that when that's what everybody else is doing? And how do you armor yourself up against it? I am so grateful that Goddard is not like that. Goddard is really incredibly supportive. We all loved reading each other's work. And we would say, I'm not sure that I understand this part, or I'm not quite sure this thing is working, but I really like this. And I think you did this thing really well. And I want to know more about this character. You know, it was always more like that, which actually helps you. Whereas tearing people to shreds, doesn't help anybody. Right. And what I, yeah, those are such great examples again of a lived experience, you know, I'm that I've heard great things about Goddard. So I'm so <laughs> glad that you found that school. Me too. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and what I love though is there's brain science now coming out. So much brain science in terms of studies about how our brains learn best. And the kinds of environments that we need in order to uh, not trigger our own primal lower brain fight or flight. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with um, we are already are wired for the negative to see the negative, mostly because we're trying to scan our environment for bears, keep ourselves (laughs) safe. Who's the bear in the room? Is there a bear in the room? (laughs) And uh, I think to recognize that we are already wired for the negative, um, that to actually rewire our brains, and you know this from some of the Kaizen Mm -hmm. tools that are so beautiful in helping people rewire their brains uh, for the positive, um, then you can help writers and artists get some objectivity if they know that brain science is automatically leading them toward the inner critic reigning, whether mm-hmm. it's a person in a, an academic program or their own inner critic. If, if we know we're just wired that way and we know that there are tools that can help rewire those neural pathways to see yeah. the positive in what we are doing, but also not trigger the fight or flight response so we can keep going like, why would you want to keep doing something if it's painful? Many right. of us do it anyways. That's what we're taught. But why not learn how to keep doing something because it's actually feeding us and making us happy? Um, but sometimes to get to that is a bumpy road where you have to yeah. kind of climb over the brain that's saying, no, this is not safe or you're bad. Right. Stop, you know, and also I think, you know, what we also don't realize is that we need community. We need to feel a part of a tribe. 
in terms of our the brain science too. So if we're in a culture that's critiquing us, we are we become afraid to use our voice because we'll be outcast from yes. the tribe. And that's like the worst thing that could happen mm-hmm. you know, to our primal brain is to feel that we are no longer a part of anything. So when you start creating healthy communities, like for me, my writing students, they keep going with each other after they've taken my class. They form groups that are positive, that are supportive. And each person sees the highest in that writer and works to bring it out. It's so beautiful. You know, it's so beautiful to create community like that. And we need that. We do, because it's the only thing that counteracts all of the negativity. Yeah. And and I think, you know, the the inner critic, and I will admit that I first encountered this idea on a Facebook meme, so <laughs> it is slightly dubious on its face, but it it resonated so strongly with me that I think it's true that, you know, the the voice you hear from your environment, whoever that is, parents, teachers, other students, whoever as a kid is the voice that becomes your inner critic. It's not necessarily you. In fact, I think it probably isn't you. And so, you know, your own voice knows that what you're doing is important, that what you're doing is good for you, that, you know, you need to do it, that you need to get it out there, even if it's just for you to put it down on paper, how that feels. It's all of the other voices that bring in the doubt that that sow those seeds that can grow to the point where you can't move, which, you know, there's fight or flight, but there's also freeze. I've, I'm an expert freezer. So I know that one really well. And, you know, so, so freezing is just, you never move, you never do anything because you're too afraid, you know, because, because if you move the saber tooth tiger is going to find you and, and eat you for dinner. But I think, you know, recognizing that that inner critic voice is not even your voice. It's the voice that you heard as a child that told you all of the things that were wrong with you that felt awful because they weren't true and something in you knew that they weren't true. And that's why they felt so bad because, you know, if it were actually true that, you know, you're a 20 foot tall green basketball player, you'd have no problem with that. Yep. That's what I am. Okay. It's right there in the mirror. But you know, when somebody's saying to you, you're worthless and your work is terrible and you shouldn't do this and you should just go count beans for the rest of your life. That's not true. That's not why you're here. We're all here to do something more than that, whether it's a profession or not. And, and it's just so incredibly destructive because we all think that it's us. We think that's the truth inside of us and it's not. Right. That's, yeah, that is beautifully said again. Um, yeah. Our, our true nature is not, is not that no. uh, critic. Yeah. Yeah. That's beautifully said. So. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. What, what more, you know, <laughs> it's, it's hard to undo and sad. Yes. it's sad that it's there and there are ways, you know, it's not only about quote unquote creative pursuits or professions. Mm-hmm. It's any dream that a person might have for their lives that uh, when they fall prey to that, those, those voices that started outside of them, you yeah. know, it, it doesn't allow them to do what they're here to do in the world, you know, because there is, each of us has a strong voice that's saying, go this way, do this, that you're needed. This is 
what you really want to do. Will you listen? So. Yeah. And it's very hard to listen when everything in you is saying, nope, not for you. Not good enough. Yeah. Not good enough. Yeah. Yeah. So when you started writing, I'm guessing that like me, you were probably pretty small. <laughs> Little. Yeah. You're playing with words as a kid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I loved, I love, I had a journal, but I loved any creative writing in class that any teacher gave us. I just took off with it. And I still have some of those writings and they're very funny. Ooh, I bet yeah. they are. <laughs> yes. They're very, oh, I had so much fun, you know, at Mm -hmm. at an earlier age. Um, And then I wrote something when I was, I think I was 11, that sort of everyone around me said, oh, you're a writer. Ooh. I know. And that was kind of a wake-up call. And I had enough inner critics, uh, enough critics around me to make that hide, want Mm -hmm. to hide. But I did write one piece where something, something much older, an older voice came through me. So that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it hid for a while. How did it come back out? Um, well, I, I became a dancer, you know, and mm-hmm. I, and then a musician and, and that place of no words felt much safer. Ah. Um, so I got to hide sort of in those places and you can say so much through dance or music. Mm-hmm. So I was still speaking, but um, I think what happened was I started crawling back to writing classes and I started observing what was not working for me in those classes because I would shake when I read my work or I Mm -hmm. would just leave a class and feel so bad, even though nobody was really (laughs) criticizing me. It was just such a funny world I'd entered into. So I decided to pull back from all of that world and just start writing on my own. Mm -hmm. And then this was in Seattle about 11 years ago now, I found a little writing group at a very mangy looking (laughs) cafe in Greenwood. Mangy, mangy cafe. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And it was every Monday night. And this woman named Marilyn taught it well, led the group. And it was a motley, speaking of M words, motley crew. that would just show up off the street. And I, you know, I thought I'd try it because it looked quite unintimidating. And um, Marilyn was probably in her eighties and she was a former English teacher. And she wrote like these bizarre sort of sexy film noir stories in this group. And I was like, Whoa, go for it. Marilyn!" (laughs) And there were people with, you know, most, many people were over probably 70. Um, There were also people with psychological issues. There were, it was, it was such a great motley, unintimidating crew. And all she did was, you know, it was like two hours. She'd write these bizarre writing prompts, like very strange writing prompts, which I loved. And I Mm -hmm. now 
call them the Marilyns because <laughs> of the course writing from the top of your head that I teach. And, and uh, in module one, we do the Marilyns. So uh, <laughs> there was something about the Marilyns that woke up my brain to something coming through me that was not normal. And um, so she would give us these prompts and then all we do is read to each other and nod and say, that was great. We didn't offer positive, nothing, just that was great. And um, I, something started happening where I stopped caring as I just completely stopped caring about trying or thinking and, you know, Ray Bradbury, he, he had a sign above his desk that said, no thinking. Mm-hmm. And look what he created. I mean, wow. Yeah. Uh, we spoke about that earlier. Um, but I got to that no thinking place where I just let go. And then a whole new group of stories started coming through me. And I'd read them out loud and I would be like, what? who is that? <laughs> what, what's that coming from? Some other land, you mm-hmm. know? And um, so eventually I started, these little stories started coming through me kind of in a fierce way. Mm-hmm. And by the time I moved to Asheville from Seattle, um, they were galloping along and I found a mentor here who's a wonderful Kevin McLevoy, he's Warren Wilson's MFA program. He's a, he's a beautiful, beautiful mentor. And he helped me birth these wacky, weird stories. And our first, our first meeting, he said, he looked at me in all seriousness. And he said, Nina, what is that knapsack saying to you? I had a knapsack on the, on the mm-hmm. chair. And, you know, here's this little bit older man with a beard, wise, you know, brilliant academic mind asking me to talk to my knapsack. (laughs) And I was like, I am digging this. This is really cool. Like, thank you, Mac. And he really helped empower that sort of nonsensical Dr. Seussian Mm -hmm. playland that I needed so badly. Like when I write, I play. Now I'm playing and I don't give a damn. And so I wrote a book of short stories and with Mac's help, I, I self-published it. It was a finalist in Forward Review's Book of the Year Short Story oh, Awards. I know that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And all that because I learned to trust myself without going to quote unquote classes. I, without, you know, trying to be good. Like, I think that trying to be good yeah it it sucks well and what does good even look like exactly there's a whole lot beyond (laughs) that yeah so yeah does that answer your question of how I became yeah and then I started performing the stories and then lots of things happened around I I love this story it's a good one it is it's a good one yeah What's that knapsack saying to you? That's awesome. (laughs) And he was serious. This was not a, I mean, it was a serious, playful question, but Mm -hmm. he was sort of being a Zen master about it. And uh, it really, really struck me. 
yeah. So I felt like my my inner child could could definitely come and be big time in the room. So um I that love a huge difference. Reclaiming that. Yeah. 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 But now I'm stuck on this idea of what what is good. What right. And what is good enough? Right. I think they're all illusions. I think so. You know, we have be good drilled into us as kids, you know, like be a good yeah. kid when you're at school, be be good for your aunt when she comes to babysit. I have to admit, I appreciate being on the receiving end of that one. But <laughs> what does it actually really, really mean? I mean, if you're five years old and you're having a bad day, you're having a bad day. And, it, you know, it's it's healthier to yell and scream when you're having a bad day and let that out than it is to be, you know, 45 and holding it in. So, so what even is, is good and what's good enough? I I mean, we're all good enough. We just don't know it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, Steve Jobs, there's a quote that I love and I'll paraphrase, but he said that the day he realized that he was just as smart as anyone else was the day he realized he could do what he was here to do in the world. And, you know, we could all say Steve Jobs is a genius, blah, blah, blah. But if he didn't realize or recognize that he was just as smart as everyone else, then he, he never, we would not have this computer we're talking to each other on right now. Yeah. And, there is no human in the world that is, I truly believe this, that is smarter than anyone else. We all have such unique gifts and experiences, unique experiences. And if we come from those experiences in our lives and we follow them and we recognize them, our strengths are, are going to lead us and you know, the world needs us really. Mm-hmm. So um, that whole notion of what is good and who is smart and who has a good IQ and it passed the SAT tests. And it's, uh, it's created like a caste system in mm-hmm. our society, I think. Um, and some of it intentional, you know, yeah. IQ tests are based on cultural biases. Mm-hmm. You know, they say they're trying to change that, but who knows? I mean, I, I think our approach to education, um, do you know Paulo Freire's work? Have you no. heard of him? No. A, a Brazilian educator who uh, sort of helped foster the literacy movement in Brazil, uh, in the favelas and all the, you know, the impoverished Mm -hmm. places and people weren't learning how to read or write. And he figured out a way to allow them to create through understanding what their external experience was Mm -hmm. how to start articulating that in the world. Um, So they actually, it's, you have to read pedagogy of the oppressed, but it's, um, 
allowing people who are feeling oppressed in whatever way they're feeling oppressed to actually have agency in the world, to become a human being, to be a person, mm-hmm. and to be a person with power and a voice. Um, and I think that's radical. And his work Definitely. is radical. And I really, I really uh, recommend people reading Pe- Pedagogy of the Oppressed. I think it, it opened my eyes in so many ways. Um, he talks about education as we use it is a method of um, banking. So you insert, you deposit knowledge Mm. into people (laughs) as opposed to withdrawing, drawing out what they have already. So when you keep trying to bank into somebody like you should know this, this is what you should be able to say and spout out and talk about as opposed to what do you already know from your experience in your life? You know, you know, and enough. the whole vessels to be filled. Yeah. Yeah. But also you're reminding me cause I did, I did teach for a while. I never got my certification, but I came this close in undergrad. So I took all the classes and, you know, one of the first things you learn in ed 101 is that, you know, the, the modern public school system, at least in the U S is, basically built on a factory model you know you're you're there and you have all the bells and all of the you know lined up desks and taking attendance and all that was was literally to get people ready to go work in factories that was the benefit of public education and in large part a lot of that hasn't changed and a lot of it you know even when I was teaching and I taught in a private school so we had more leeway we weren't attached to standardized tests and things like that. But I definitely saw instances where it was more about the rules than about what made sense. And and we're still, you know, it, it, it is changing. There's more collaborative learning and more of an attempt to, you know, get kids to actually bring out the great stuff that's already there. But so much of it is still based on that assembly line model. And that doesn't do anybody any good either. Yeah, I think that is, and it, that gives me chills, you know, that it was based on the factory mm-hmm. model of expediency in that way. And I've heard that, but I, to hear that again, it's in this context, it's, it's powerful. And, you know, I do know there things are changing and it, I see it in my community, like the kids, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of good stuff happening. Um, and <laughs> just, I guess the notion of the authority expert model of this person Mm -hmm. above you and they're your teacher, you know, they know more than you is so common. It's so, you know, assumed that of course that's the teacher's role. Then, you know, it's just a normal thing we lapse into. Mm -hmm. Um, When it it isn't that much of a shift, I think to kind of go, Hey, peer-to-peer learning or how can, yeah, how can you learn from the person next to you? How can you support each other? How, how much do you know? Or what do you have to contribute to this? You have a lot to contribute to this. The, the quieter voices have a lot, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. more to contribute. How do you bring yeah. that, you know, and this top-down thing mm-hmm. is ripples. Yeah. 
Well, and it's how everything works. You know, it's how yeah. work works. It's, you know, and, and I think it's just, it's this hierarchical thing that we're so used to that we think it's the only way we forget that there are other ways, but, you know, I, I'm also reminded that the older I get, the more I realize that I don't know. Oh yeah. Uh, the things that I always thought I knew, <laughs> I'm, I'm still kind of convinced having recently <laughs> spent time with my six-year-old nephew that, that it's not teenagers who, who know everything. It's six-year-olds. He, everything he says is with absolute conviction. There's no doubt in his voice. I'm really kind of jealous. Whereas now I'm just like, I don't, I don't know. I thought maybe this thing was true, but I'm not convinced about that anymore. What do, what do I know? I could be wrong. And, and I think the more we start to realize that, yeah, there are certain things we know experientially, but there are plenty of other things that we always thought we knew that we really don't know including whether or not we're good enough to do certain things and, and all of that. I think may, maybe it's a gift of age. Maybe I'm just weird. I don't know. I don't have well, somebody I, else to compare it I with. Feel the, yeah, I feel the same way. I know less and less. And that's why as a quote unquote teacher or facilitator, I'm quite humbled in the mm-hmm. face of my students. And, you know, I share vulnerably with them my experience and, uh, you know, I think that that's how they learn that it's safe to yeah, show up in that environment because the shoe's not going to drop, you know? Um, yeah. And six-year-olds rock. And <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying that to become a, a brain surgeon, you don't need to. <laughs> I mean, Neither I am I. Hear, right. We are not saying that. Of course, we're not saying that. Yes, if you were to cut my head open, I want you to have had a whole lot of training. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So we're not, we're not talking about that. We're just talking about the human process of learning and how yeah. we move forward in a way that's healthy and supported. Yeah. And I think it's hard to understand, especially to understand someone else, if you already think you know. Right. You know, you can't, you can't learn what you already think you know. Right. Yeah. That, that's such a metaphor for, you know, people that we don't like in our world, you know, in Mm -hmm. our lives, how can we sort of move a little toward, well, I don't really know you. I don't know your experience. Can you, can we listen to each other in a different way? Mm-hmm. Yeah. More open hearted way. So. Well, yeah. I think that's a really great place to stop. Let everybody chew on that one for a while. <laughs> I know that we will. We're, I can see that we're chewing yeah. right now. We are. Yeah. I've loved this conversation <laughs> with you. Too. Yeah. It's, I'm so glad I, we finally made it work. <laughs> I know. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Nancy. Thanks so much for joining me today. I know there's a lot in this interview, which is why there are a lot of links waiting for you at FYCuriosity.com, including the link to sign up for Nina's writing salons. Be sure to check those out and share your thoughts on this episode on Instagram at FYCuriosity. Nina and I are already talking about having a second conversation, so if there's anything in particular you'd like us to discuss, please do let me know. You can find show notes, the six creative beliefs that are screwing you up, and more at fycuriosity.com. I'd also love for you to join the conversation on Instagram. You'll find me at fycuriosity. 
Follow Your Curiosity is produced by me, Nancy Norbeck, with music by Joseph McDade. If you like Follow Your Curiosity, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends. It really helps me reach new listeners. See you next time. Thank you.